I think one very common mistake that we see is that startups try to boil the ocean. So uh, instead of trying to build the best possible product, um, our advice is to get your customers something they can use quickly and test it as soon as you can. This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about the founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Susan Kevin. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to TX2, founder of LA-based seed venture fund, Fika Ventures, a former college dropout turned Amazon bookseller and entrepreneur. So we're trying something new. We're still going to talk to all the founders that you guys love hearing from. We're also going to throw in some venture capitalists who fund these early stage companies. The first one we're talking to is TX, which is going on today. Suze, what did you think of this conversation? I think we're cheating a little bit with TX because TX was actually an entrepreneur before he became a VC. And from what I can remember, other VCs that we've um, interviewed also fall into that category. So it's going to be interesting to be able to compare what type of VCs there are who have been entrepreneurs in their career and the ones who just started as um, venture capitalists. It will indeed. And we'd love to know what you think. We have a feedback form on our website. If you haven't been there before, it's laisgoodforyou.com or email us at hello at laisgoodforyou.com. Now with that, let's jump into TX's story. I think in the early years, I grew up in a upper middle class family. So the early years were pretty fortunate. We didn't have a lot, but everything I needed was pretty much given to me. Um, it was in sort of my later teenage years where my dad's business started to have problems, and then we as a family got into a bit of financial debt. What was your father's business? Uh, he was in the construction business, so we actually come from a line of entrepreneurs. So he was a fourth-generation entrepreneur. They started their own construction company, but sort of in the early 2000s, um, that business became very challenged. Um, so he struggled to build the business over time. And um, so the macroeconomic challenges were, were also making it a bit tougher for him as well. Were you, did you work with your dad? I did not. Um, I would have loved to. Um, we joke that, my mom jokes today that we're pretty much the same person, just from a different era. So I actually, had I had the opportunity, I think I would have. What was the um, school like in Singapore? So to give you a bit of background, Singapore has about 5 million people. Um, it's a country with no natural resources. Um, so the government always tries to maximize the value it can get out of every person living in the country. Uh, maybe that came out the wrong way. But sort of uh, point being, the byproduct is that the schooling system in Singapore was very similar to a cram school, where they gave you a good foundation in math and science, but we weren't really given the time or freedom to explore our interests. So I think throughout my childhood and my teenage years, I felt pretty stifled. Um, there's this joke in Singapore that goes around that uh, we're all told to fight for the five C's. So the five C's in Singapore are cash, condominium, credit card, country club, and a car, which, is, which seems very materialistic. But I think having sort of a single focus and single goal um, helps the government and people to focus on a single mission. So that, that pretty f much for my educational experience in Singapore. When you, when you say we're all told, is that the government? Is that your family? Is that your friends? 
it was very subtle in many ways. So you would see advertisements on TV featuring families with the five C's. Um, when you graduated from college, everyone was like, hey, you need to get married and buy your first house. So I don't think there was sort of um, a lot of pressure from the government, but there are a lot of subtle, subtle reminders telling you like, hey, these were the things that are important in life and that you should focus your time on. That's amazing. I had no idea that that... No clue yeah. whatsoever. Clearly, we need to travel more. <laughs> yeah, not... with your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> but this was not the reason why you left Singapore. You went to you went to college in Connecticut. And was that what sparked your interest in being an entrepreneur or being in the U.S.? Yeah, so at that point in time when I was applying for college, uh, my family was going through a tough financial situation. So there were limited options in terms of colleges that offered me a full scholarship. Um, I was very fortunate through uh, AIG, the insurance company, I got a full ride to go to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. So I saw that as sort of my ticket out of Singapore for me to have more freedom to explore my interests. So I was very excited about the experience and um, actually never really thought that I would become an entrepreneur um, till what happened to my dad during my freshman year. So what happened? Um, so my dad got really sick my freshman year uh, with cancer and passed away three months later. Um, we being sort of uh, good children and a, a great wife, which is my mom, we tried to get the best medical care for him. Um, what was unfortunate is that my dad had limited health care insurance and almost no life insurance. So um, want to make a plug to one of my portfolio companies, Policy Genius. You should buy life insurance. But... Um, I think going back to the story, we were left with about $300,000 in debt when my dad passed away. And the creditors started calling myself and my mom almost every day of the week, even though I was here in America. So my mom couldn't really figure out what to do at that point in time. And I, being sort of the de facto head of the family at that point, um, took on the responsibility to take a leave of absence from school to try to figure out how to make money in the fastest possible way. How did you do that? Um, I, <laughs> I tell this story to people that I still believe to this day that necessity is the biggest driver of entrepreneurship. So I thought about many business ideas. The one that was clear to me was that textbooks in Asia were much cheaper than they were in the US. So if I could create a platform where I could source these textbooks and sell them online, this could potentially be a great business. So I think call me naive, call me blind. Um, this was what I came up with and convinced one of my college buddies to start this business with me. And how old were you at this point? I was just under 20 at that point in time. Wow. That's quite amazing. What was that? How did those conversations go down when you were, or was your friend also 20 years? Yes. 20? Yes. Um, I think for him, he didn't think that we would be doing this for three to four years. He saw this as a three-month thing and, oh, TX would probably give up and sort of find a job where he could pay the bills. But we actually made a huge effort to start this company. So I put my backpack on and through relationships we had with uh, friends, through my professors, we got in touch with about 70 angel investors. I remember the list we had. I think I still have it today. And um, I think obviously now it all makes sense that um, I was... Well, a de facto dropout of school, I didn't have any prior working experience. So for me not to get 
any funding from these 70 angel investors was kind of expected. And I guess on the other side, it's pretty ironic that I'm a VC today on the other <laughs> side of the table trying to fund these entrepreneurs. But I think what's amazing about this whole process is that now I truly empathize with the entrepreneur's journey, how difficult it is to sort of raise your first round of capital. And when we interact with entrepreneurs, I keep going back to my own experience of raising capital, and that allows us to form sort of real authentic relationships with them. So you mentioned that you couldn't raise any money from these angel investors. How did you fund your startup? Yeah, it, it, it was it was a bit of a loophole that we found. So um, back in the day, and I believe it's still the case today, uh, eBay and Amazon pay sellers on a two-week cycle. So they'll add up all the sales that you have across the first 14 days and pay you out on the 15th day. And what we realized is that credit card cycles followed a one-month cycle. So we got 10 to 15 of our closest friends and God bless them for helping us to use their credit cards and start sort of 50 to 100 eBay and Amazon accounts on our behalf. They would then buy books from us and at the 15th day of the month, we would get paid from eBay and Amazon and then we would refund all these credit cards and that provided the working capital for us to get started. Um, probably not the most glamorous thing about my history as an entrepreneur, but that's kind of what we needed uh, at the very beginning. So how long did you do this for? Yeah, so we we were lucky that we got traction almost immediately. We timed the launch of our business during sort of uh, the winter break of my freshman year. So once we ended up selling books, we got revenue in right away. So we only needed to run this sort of growth hack for about three to four months. And uh, at that point, the business became profitable and we were pretty much self-sufficient. So you had, if I understand this correctly, you had money for 15 days for three to four months. So of half the month you had you had funding, then you basically had to give it all back. Yes. What did you do for those two weeks when you had no money? So you, so we had money for fifteen days, and we frantically had to sell as many textbooks as we could to cover the float because we knew on the thirtieth day we would have to refund X amount of money, and we had to make sure that the amount of revenue we're bringing in was larger than X. So that's how we ran the business for the first three to four months probably the most stressful time in my life. And we were so glad when we finally looked at our sales in the fourth month and realized we could pay every single one of our friends back. That's amazing. Did you, did you give your friends any, a, a bonus for having helped we you? Did. <laughs> we did, we did, we did, uh, we did. We gave them sort of a small amounts of equity in the company. So when we finally sold the company, I think we threw a big party and uh, everyone was very happy. So let's talk about your exit. Yes. How did this happen? So we grew the company over the course of three years to about seven and a half million in revenue. Um, but sort of the writing was on the wall. I think we never had any formal business training. So we didn't know how to scale the business at that point in time. And again, it was by chance that um, our 3PL provider who handled all the logistics for us saw that our business was growing and that um, there was actually a huge customer base that kept buying textbooks from us and said that, hey, you know what? It might be interesting if we buy your business because we know how to operate businesses at scale. So my co-founder and I, we've I think at that point, for the last like five years, we never had more than $1,000 in our bank account. So this was, this was shocking, but sort of a relief. Um, so leading up 
to the acquisition, my co-founder and I spent many weekends role-playing, talking about what will make a good acquisition price. And after a couple of weeks, we agreed to a minimum. And both of us swore that we would only accept a price that came above the minimum. But again, um, that, that in itself is a story to be told. So were you pleased with the exit? We know that you can't talk about the numbers. Uh, so I was. I, I think most importantly, it was a good exit. Um, and it allowed me to have the freedom to do what I do today. Um, but more specifically about the exit, it was actually a very surreal conversation. So we walked into a big room filled with executives from the acquirer. And within the first sort of five minutes, they opened with an offer which was 30% lower than the minimum my co-founder and I agreed to. <laughs> and and as, as you might have guessed, both of us said yes at the very same moment. So... Uh, <laughs> My my friends today who know me well uh, joke that from a time to dollar ratio, that was probably the most expensive five minutes of my life. <laughs> were there any lessons that stayed with you, um, you know, from the time when you were building the company and also from the exit itself? Yeah, so I, I think there were two important lessons. I, I think telling the story about sort of that five to ten minute acquisition conversation actually sums up my experience as an entrepreneur. Um, it was pretty lonely for the most part. I don't think we ever had anyone help us or advise us through the company's life. And that's something I want to do for entrepreneurs today. I think that was my whole motivation for becoming a VC today. And I guess on a related note, the loneliness of that journey made me realize how important it is to have a co-founder. And my advice to entrepreneurs today is that even if you don't have a co-founder, you should surround yourself with great people who can support you in many different ways. So if you you started this business because of a family situation, um, were you on the, when you exited the company, were you able to take care of that family situation? And how did your mom react? Uh, yeah, I mean, we were very fortunate. Um, when we sold the business, I was able to pay off all the debt uh, bought a couple of houses. Uh, my mom and my brother live in one of them right now. And so the other houses we have, um, the rental income from these houses pays for their living expenses. So um, by no means are they living a luxurious life, but I'm very happy that now we have the means to uh, support my family. That's wonderful. And uh, amazing that you were able to accomplish that at like 23. Yeah, thank you. How did you end up at McKinsey? Um Another interesting story. So uh, at Wesleyan, uh, promising students were paired up with an illustrious alumnus who would serve as a mentor to a student. So I was very fortunate to be paired up with Ron Daniels. So a bit of background, Ron Daniels was formerly the global managing partner at McKinsey and ran the New York office for many years. So I remember the first time I had a call with him where I was telling him about the company I was building and that I would have to take a leave of absence from school. Um, he didn't say it explicitly, but I could tell from his voice that he thought it was a horrible idea, but he was kind enough not to say it. <laughs> um, so we continued with biannual check-ins. And I remember on one of the first calls, he asked me, so have you sold more than 10 books a week? And my response was like, we just sold 3,000 last week. I think that was the moment when he started to take the business seriously. So we kept in touch. And when I sold the company, he advised me to come work for McKinsey. 
Um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but after all the hard-coded Excel sheets I did and saw that 15 to 20 minute conversation, actually five to 10, which cost me uh, probably the most amount of money in my life, I decided that I probably needed to pick up some business skills. So what skills did you, did you get out of um, working at McKinsey? Um, I think I picked up a more structured way of thinking through things, addressing problems, and sort of being more comprehensive in the way I thought about a solution set to problems. I think it gave me a good network of people I could rely on and, uh, and speak to whenever I came across a problem. And I think it allowed me to communicate both orally and sort of um, in writing in, in, a, in a more thorough and sort of thoughtful way. So I'm, I'm super happy having gone through that two and a half years at McKinsey. Um, but I think at that point, I decided that, hey, I never wanted to be a consultant for the rest of my life. And I've learned pretty much what I set out to do and was ready for the next chapter in my life. So how did you decide and when did you decide to become a VC? Was it like a single moment or was it something that you were thinking about for a long time? Yeah, um, I knew I wanted to get back into technology. I think when I was leaving McKinsey, I was still debating whether, hey, should I start another company or can I find a way to be involved in the tech ecosystem, whether it's at that point I was thinking, hey, if I could be a, be a VC, great, but as long as I'm, I was part of the ecosystem, I would be happy. So, um, And I thought about sort of places in the world where I could actually be part of the community and Silicon Valley naturally came to mind. And uh, having a Singapore passport, I think I needed a reason to come back to the US. So business school was a natural stepping stone for me to reconnect with this ecosystem. So where did you go to B-School? So I went to Stanford for business school. Um, it, what did you, obviously you focused on VC while you were there? So the moment I got to Stanford, I was pretty focused in sort of what my objectives were, was to reconnect with the tech community. So I made a conscious effort to get to know a lot of people in the ecosystem and sort of in my first couple of weeks was fortunate enough to meet members at Eric Schmidt's Venture Fund Innovation Endeavors. Um, it was fortunate for me too that they were just getting started with their new fund uh, when I joined at part-time working 20, 30 hours a week at school. They only had three people there. I remember building tables over the weekend. Um, and one of the first few companies I got to work with was a company called SoFi. Um, so the founders were in my business school class. Um, sort of, I worked on the diligence when we were considering an investment. We ended up leading a seed stage investment in the company. Uh, and as you may know, the company is now worth a couple of billion. So that being one of my first few venture capital experiences was simply amazing. So what was it like, Mike, I'm assuming it was Mike Cagney who was in class with you. Yep. So what was it like having, being in a position where, you know, you're helping your classmate get his company funded? Mm -hmm. How did that feel like? Yeah, so I was actually closer to the two other co-founders, Dan Macklin and Ian Brady. So Ian's no longer the company, Dan left recently. Uh, but it was very strange because we were, I, I joke with Dan these days that three things happened the same day. I was sitting in a class right next to him. I ended up working on the diligence memo after school, and we ended up going to the bar for a drink. <laughs> so um, 
but I, th- I think the great thing about what happened was that I had a real relationship with these entrepreneurs. So when we funded the company, we meaning Innovation Endeavors, um, there's this implicit trust that we had that we knew that, hey, although the idea was early, we knew that these three entrepreneurs were talented and they were going to work as hard as they could to make this a success. So that really helped in the decision making process. So was it during your time at Innovation Endeavors that you realized that you would rather be a VC than a founder? I don't think there was a single defining moment, but over time I came to two realizations. One, I still wanted to be involved in building companies, uh, but more importantly, sort of, I, I started to think of three groups of founders in my mind. So the first group being founders that sell their company for nothing, uh, and that's a huge chip on their shoulders. They want to go out and proof that they can actually build a successful company. Um, And then the second group of founders, people who sell the company for a gazillion dollars and um, they have absolute freedom to do whatever they want to do. And then the third group, sort of uh, people like myself who worked really hard, grinded it out for a modest outcome. And I I realized that after falling in that bucket, I became more conscious of how hard it was to actually build and sell a successful company. So it made me think that being naive when I first started actually made me a better founder. And now I think that I could make a bigger contribution by helping others achieve their dreams. That's interesting. Do you, it feels like with, with venture capital, uh, there's a lot of coaching involved. And I'm wondering, you mentioned your father earlier, and I'm wondering if there's some some similar traits between you and your father, between how you have approached entrepreneurship and in the ways that you're providing coaching now. Got it. Um, so my father was a person who would always challenge the norm. Um, he wouldn't take yeses and answer. Um, and he came from a line of entrepreneurs. Um, I think that he would, I think it was challenging for him growing up sort of in a family of entrepreneurs where he felt he had to conform to certain things that his my granddad or his granddad wanted him to do. And I guess fortunately or unfortunately, he was never placed in a situation like myself in an early age. But everything I know about him points to the fact that I think he would have achieved the same outcome. I think he had the same tenacity, the same resilience, sort of... Um, the same open-minded thinking that I had. Um, and I really ha- wish that perhaps he could have been my co-founder. If we had a chance to work together, I think that would have been amazing. So um, although we, we never interacted formally when I was building my business or we didn't get a chance to, I think sort of in the background, he was always there sort of reminding me and helping me in my journey. So what was the next step after Innovation Endeavors? So towards the end of my time at Innovation Endeavors, I got to know a large family office here in Los Angeles. They were starting to write small angel checks into deals. And so given the size of the family, wanted to start a more formal platform. Um, They were very forward thinking. I think they realized this was sometime in early 2012 that Los Angeles was growing as a tech ecosystem. And it would be wise for them to place a couple bets into promising companies. So um, they brought me on right after my time at Innovation Endeavors to start a $30 million venture fund for them. Um, And this to me was super exciting. It was 
like starting my own company again, uh, where um, I had the chance to build a platform from scratch, decided on what was important to the platform, and go out and build it. So um, I think it sort of satisfied two of my needs. One was to build something new and sort of have the chance to work with great people. So that was Carlin VC. That's right. The company that you joined. And I believe they've got seven exits on their books. Yeah, so Carlin Ventures was the platform I started. It's it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Carlin Asset Management, which is the family office. And uh, we've actually had nine exits. Um, five, Congratulations. Five of these. Thank you. Um, it's the hard work of the entrepreneurs. We we were just there to support them. Uh, and five of these nine exits were actually LA companies. That's abnormally fast, isn't it, to have nine exits within... We, uh, we had time. nine exits in about four to five years. Our first exit came after about 18 months. Um, so I think we were at a time where uh, people being acquirers were paying a lot of attention to the LA market, saw that, hey, these are great companies, then let's see if we can buy them and sort of build them into our existing platforms before they get to scale. So before you said that, I was about to ask whether we in LA are at disadvantage because there are not many really, really large acquirers here, but it seems that it's quite the opposite. Yeah, in fact, for most of the, these companies, um, the acquirers were all outside of LA. So they wanted to build a presence in LA or acquire a skill set they didn't have. So I think taking you back into the history of LA tech, uh, my partner, who I run Fika with on a day-to-day -day basis, Eva, um, the first company she was part of was a company called Applied Semantics. So they sold to Google in 2003. And um, the company, being Eva and the rest of the management team, convinced Larry and Sergey to let the company stay in LA. So that was kind of like the first test case of Patient Zero. And uh, since then, acquirers now have seen many successful multi-billion dollar companies like Snap, Cornerstone On Demand, Blackline, to know that scaling a company in LA is possible. And with LA producing the most number of engineering graduates every year, talent these days is not an issue. Yeah, that's actually what we heard from some of the other founders, that they find it very, very easy to find talent here. And especially those uh, who are building products in deep tech, because obviously engineers want to solve really complex problems. So this is a, this is a perfect city for them. Well, let's talk about your fund's name, Fika. What does this mean? I got it. Uh, so Fika is a Swedish cultural activity that involves having a cup of coffee to get to know someone better. Uh, I'm surprised both of you didn't pick up on my Swedish accent. <laughs> uh, but, but on a more serious note, we found that uh, most of our best relationships with entrepreneurs uh, got started from simple coffee chats with them. And it kind of embodies how we like to relate to entrepreneurs going forward. And that's how Eva and I picked the name. So you've mentioned Eva now a few times, and she is your co-founder. And in one of the conversations that we had before, um, you told me that you were really, really trying to find a way how two of you could work together. And it took you a few years actually to get to that point. Yep. Um, so I got to know her shortly after moving to LA in 2012 and found that, hey, um, our networks were very complementary. 
uh, we went back and forth and debated on deals, which is a very healthy thing because she offered a very unique yet different perspective. Um, and we thought, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a chance to work together and build something special? But timing was never right for us. So when I started Carlin Ventures, she was still running Factual um, as a co-founder. And then when she left in 2013 to start her first venture fund, which is Sousa Ventures, I was just a year in to Carlin Ventures and couldn't quite leave what I just got started. So in 2016, I think both of us were at a natural crossroads in our careers where she was considering staying on for Sousa too. Um, the Carlin family wanted me to start a second fund, but Eva and I decided, hey, this might be our one chance to work together and try to build something special. So that's what we did. So we we decided formally in late 2016 that we would come together and try to raise a small amount of money for Fika Ventures. So how small that amount of money was? Yeah. So we, we were very humbled by the number of people that were willing to support us. So we closed on $41 million for our first fund. That's great. What kind of startups are you funding? Um, so we, we like to describe startups first by the type of founders we like. So we have this unique phrase for founders we go after who we call visionary pragmatists. So let me break that down a bit. So visionary in the sense of being able to, to have a big vision for the company, um, yet at the same time being very practical in the way they execute, being able to sort of execute well off a task list. It sounds like two very simple traits, but finding the combination of the two is extremely difficult. So I think within that subset of entrepreneurs, we try to look for people who have had relevant industry experience and are trying to build companies in verticals where we can be helpful, namely enterprise software, marketplaces, financial services, and a bit of healthcare IT. So, so it sounds like you guys want people who have huge ideas, but also know how to execute against them, right? That's right. So if you had like a Venn diagram, kind of that's the middle, right? That's the best way to describe it. So what, how do you gauge that? Um, it, I think it goes back to the concept of a fika break. So we spend a lot of time before we invest, getting to know them as people, sort of um, how they think about building a company, sort of what are their concerns, figure out like how we can best support them. For example, some of them might say, hey, I'm very good at marketing, but I need help hiring a sales leader. And that's where we would step in. So I think over the course of a couple of months, we usually have a good sense of um, whether this entrepreneur actually could check both boxes and we feel comfortable and think that, hey, it is an exciting problem they're trying to solve. Then we would go ahead and fund the company. Can you tell us a little bit about the startups that you're working with, the ones that you funded? Sure. So I'll briefly talk about three of them. Uh, we funded a company called OpenPath. So OpenPath was founded by Alex and James, who are the founders of Edgecast. So Edgecast sold to Verizon for about $350 million. And the, the goal of OpenPath is to improve access control within your workspace. So Alex and James, when they're working at Verizon, saw this as a day-to-day -day problem. And when they left, really wanted to find a solution. So I think going back to sort of how we describe entrepreneurs, we, we felt that they had a big vision and sort of proved over time that they were able to build successful companies. So these were exactly the type of entrepreneurs we wanted to back. And 
Um, a second investment I'll talk about is WeCare. So WeCare is a solving a very big need within our ecosystem, which is the shortage of quality childcare. So Jessica came from obviously being a mom and running a preschool herself. And sort of that experience um, caused her to want to improve the way um, childcare is today in the U.S. So she set out to build uh, WeCare, which is a managed franchise platform to help uh, people start daycares in their home. So um, both excited about the company as well as sort of the grand vision they have to improve childcare within our country. And finally, uh, Papaya Payments, I think it's an app that everyone should use. Um, it allows you to take a picture of any bill you have and pay it right away. So it could be a parking citation, it could be a medical bill, it could be a property tax bill. Um, Jason, the CTO and co-founder, was working on this uh, during his PhD. His PhD was focused on computer vision and machine learning. So we felt that, hey, you've been working on it for many years and finally found a practical application um, to use this technology. So we were very excited to back him and Patrick. So I'm, I'm just curious. You, you mentioned three different companies that are all, it seems like, you know, one's a mom, one sounds like a computer vision expert. They're obvious, are they friends? How, how did you actually meet these people? It doesn't seem like they're traveling in the same circles. That's a great question. So we typically get to know all these entrepreneurs from other entrepreneurs. So Jessica and her team, we got to know from uh, Jesse, who's the CTO and co-founder of WeCare. Eva was an angel investor in a company called TradeZ. Um, and Jesse was the director of engineering for TradeZ. So we... We as individuals try to be as helpful as we can to people within portfolio companies that we invest in. And I think over time, we reap the benefits of sort of all the effort we put in. So when Jesse left to start WeCare, we were one of the first phone calls we, he made. And given that we knew him from sort of Eva's prior experience with TradeZ, it was very easy for us to get comfortable with him and the rest of the team. So how do you, if, if you're an entrepreneur, say you're you're Jessica and you're working on WeCare, how how does she know when she's actually ready? Because when you're an entrepreneur, you always feel like you need money. I know this firsthand, so does Sue. <laughs> how do you, but when when what kind of numbers do you actually want to see? God, you do it when you run out of money in your personal bank account. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think sort of two things I would encourage entrepreneurs to think about. I think first... Um, that spend enough time trying to understand the problem you're trying to tackle and validate. Um, it could be customer interviews, it could be speaking to industry experts that this is an actual problem and that there's a sizable addressable market. So once you've done this, then um, come up with a well thought out game plan, including so getting the right team in place on how capital and additional resources that a VC could provide you will help to get you to a solution faster. So if you feel confident and can look an investor in the eye and say that, hey, if I've done both of the things well and you are the right person to help me, then I feel that's a natural point in time when entrepreneurs should go out and raise money. So it sounds like you're, you're telling the entrepreneurs here to get out of the office and go interview people at a minimum. And a better scenario would be go run an experiment of some kind. Is that roughly? That's, 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 that's a lot of the process. And I would say that, hey, think about how you're going to build this company over the next 12, 18 months. 
what are some of the resources you would need and how you would get hold of them. I think we as VCs don't expect you to have all the answers, but want to make sure that you've thought through sort of all the alternatives and pick the best one. And obviously expecting you to change course as need be through the process. Great. So what kind of advice would you give to first-time founders? Seriously consider whether raising venture capital dollars is the right thing for you. Um, not every successful business needs to rely on venture capital funding. Um, there are a lot of alternative funding sources for you to get to scale. You could license out your technology. You could go with traditional bank financing. I think you always have to remember that uh, we as VCs expect an exponential return on the investment we make. So I think you want to make sure if you take on venture capital that those expectations are aligned. Otherwise, it'll lead to many more problems down the road. What are the biggest um, mistakes startups make after they've raised? So I think one very common mistake that we see is that startups try to boil the ocean. So uh, instead of trying to build the best possible product, um, our advice is to get your customers something they can use quickly and test it as soon as you can. Um, you often find that sort of it takes many iterations of your product to get to a point where customers are actually happy. And if, if you don't test it soon enough, you might run out of capital or you might run out of resources for you to do that. What does that mean when customers are happy? How do you know? So we, we as entrepreneurs or, or sort of entrepreneurs have um, an idea of what a customer want to see in a product, but there's often a disconnect between what an entrepreneur wants to build versus what a customer needs. So, and a customer can never provide you accurate feedback Till they actually test and try the product. So you could show them mockups, you could show them screenshots, but you would never get the same precision in terms of feedback before you actually place it in their hands. So we want to see that happen sooner rather than later, get the feedback and build sort of a second, third version of the product that the customer actually wants. So what if a customer comes in and, and so what if you run an experiment and um, you have a prototype of something and, and you find out that the thing that your customer wants doesn't make sense? There's no viable business model there. What would you recommend an entrepreneur do? How, how does that conversation work when they come to you and say, guess what? This, this really isn't a business. What do we do now? Yeah, so um, I think there are two scenarios, right? One, if we haven't funded the company. <laughs> uh, and second, if, if we fund the company. So I'll, I'll focus on sort of the latter scenario. So I think we would sort of uh, have a very open conversation with the entrepreneur. I think sometimes the answer is like, hey, if you're not passionate about anything else or you don't feel that your team's well set up to tackle a different problem, then sometimes it's best to call it a day. Like you've done your work uh, in earnest. Um, you found that, hey, the market isn't quite ready for what you're trying to build. So it's better that, hey, come back in a couple of years and start a new company. That way, sort of you're minimizing the losses both for your personal time and for the investor capital. So I think that's what we would recommend. But if we feel that the team can pivot um, into something more interesting, um, I think case in point, we're not investors. I kind of wish I was in my friend Eddie Liu's company. He started a company called Goat. Oh, um, yeah. That's an online marketplace. So the first company he built was a company called Grub With Us. So Grub With Us uh, was a group dating app where you could actually come together with friends to actually 
um, go to a restaurant and have a great conversation. But that never really became viral. So he spent a couple of iterations going through a couple of ideas and finally landed on GOAT. So in that case, I think there was an amazing core team in place and they were adamant on finding the right idea. So in, in that case, I think that was something I would have recommended to continue searching for the right idea, but it obviously depends on a case-to-case basis. Yeah. So it sounds like even, I think what you're saying is, uh, even though a product hypothesis might fail, that doesn't mean it's the end of the road. It sounds like you can pivot. And it sounds like, uh, based on what you also said, that if an investor or a, an entrepreneur returns money to you, that you would actually be open to invest in him, in him or her again. Yes. I think it shows that they are responsible in the way they're handling investor capital, and that goes a long way for us. Wonderful. You've mentioned goats, so let's talk about um, LA startups. And this is my favorite question that I like asking all the VCs. Is there one startup that you really, truly regret not investing in? Uh, there are many, but <laughs> in the interest of time, let me just talk about one of them. So um, we met a company called Honey. So it's a browser plugin that helps you save on anything you, you, you're about to buy. Uh, many times. So I met Ryan um, and George on many occasions and passed on investing at least twice. Um, so I guess the biggest regret here is that uh, they've been so kind to us, even though we passed on the company. So um, they showed up whenever we invite them for events. Uh, George personally did a reference call for a company that we were looking at. He didn't even have to respond to me. Um, so I feel that this was a big miss on two levels. I think one, obviously didn't see the potential of the idea, but two, missed out on the opportunity to work with two amazing individuals. Do you, do you know why you guys decide not to work with, with Honey? What were the reasons? Yes. <laughs> um, I think, so if you know how Honey works, it's a browser plugin. Um, so it's dependent on a browser being the platform. So we had concerns that, hey, if you're dependent on a browser, say Chrome or Safari, that ultimately your fate lies in their hands. I mean, at some point they might decide to do this themselves or decide to shut down the platform. But I think what we, what we didn't pay attention to was that when a product has such a clear value proposition, consumers will get it to scale. So I think that was a great learning experience for me as a VC and sort of one that I'll continue to build into our investment process. What about some other exciting startups in LA? So if you look at LA, we have such a large population and a very diverse background of people that that's like a natural place to scale a great marketplace company. And we've seen sort of marketplace companies grow very quickly in recent years. I think two examples being WAG, which is the dot walking company, and Fair.com, which is Scott Painter's second company or third company um, that's trying to disrupt, disrupt the car leasing model. So, And on the enterprise side, which is where I spend a lot of my time, I think we've seen a growing security mafia both in the OC so um, and here in Los Angeles. So the, the one in the OC comes from there being $2 billion security companies in the OC, CrowdStrike and Silent. So we started to see people leave this, these companies. One example being Glenn, who was the CTO of Silence. He started a company called Obsidian, 
which is amazing and tackling sort of very difficult problems. And here in LA, there's a growing group of um, enterprise CEOs focused on security. So um, I'm very sort of proud to be to be friends with Andrew Peterson from Signal Sciences, uh, Grant Miller from Replicated. Um, these are amazing people, and I think they'll continue to build and scale great companies in LA. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Andrew and Grant because they are in our uh, next episodes, oh, wow. just coming out in the next few weeks. So great that you know them. You put up a lot of events with Eva in LA. Yes, uh, I, I guess that's my part-time job as an event coordinator, but <laughs> um, I... I think sort of our interest in putting on events uh, comes from us wanting to support the community. So when Eva and I first came together, this was even before we started Fika. This was when we were friends and looked at investments together. We we thought of what was the single biggest gap that exists within the LA tech ecosystem. And I think one of the things that we talked about was that we have great entrepreneurs in LA but they don't have the right connections to get to Silicon Valley investors. They don't have the right connections to get to people who have built and scaled great tech companies across the country. So we said that, hey, let us try our best to put together our networks to see if we can bridge this gap. So we've put on this one event for four years now. It's called the uh, LA First Look Retreat. Uh, we gather three groups of people about the equal sizes, so 50 from each category. So the first 50 are partner-level VCs from all the large funds in Silicon Valley. Um, second category is 50 very, very successful entrepreneurs. So people who have attended our events include uh, Rick Stolmeyer from MindBody, Adam Miller from Cornerstone, uh, Jamie from Ring, just as an example. And the final 50 are sort of, we feel, the most promising up-and-coming entrepreneurs within the Southern California ecosystem. So um, these are people who have raised some amount of money, typically $5 million or more, and are on their way to create great things. So we put them all together in a single location for a day and sort of we let the magic happen organically. So they get to know each other, form relationships. And um, I can't tell you like the number of emails we've received from people who have attended the event to say that, hey, I met so-and-so at your event. We ended up taking money from his fund two years down the road. So I, I think this is our small contribution to the community. And we were very, very glad to see that it's helped a lot of people. Well, thank you very much for this. So do you think that LA has got a potential to become as big of a technology center as, as the Bay Area? Uh, that's always been my hope. I think we are still a couple of years from getting there, but there are a few promising signs. So we talked about this earlier that LA actually has the most number of engineering graduates every year. I think the key difference, and I ran a small career fair in 2012 in U at USC and again in 2017, what we found that there were long lines for typical careers in banking and consulting back in 2012. These days, the longest lines are for tech. So everyone wants to join a tech company. It's cool, it's hip to graduate and be part of Snap or one of these large companies. So I think this is the formative infrastructure for great innovation and it, it'll just happen over time. I think the one ingredient that we need is more later stage investors to believe in the ecosystem and invest more dollars. Um, although there have been a growth for VCs in LA, we're still sort of a fraction 
of the size of the Silicon Valley fund. So we have that final ingredient. I think over time, LA will be a big technology hub. We should add this to our goal list to convince more late stage VCs oh, absolutely. to invest in yes. LA, How can we LA startups. <laughs> um, what's the best way for um, a startup founder to get in touch with you? So I would say find someone who knows someone on the FICA team to make a warm introduction. Um, LA being a relatively small ecosystem, I don't think is that difficult. And it's a testament to a founder's resourcefulness. So, um, And we're pretty easy to read. So uh, we know, uh, I think most of the time, if you know one of our founders, they are more than happy to facilitate an introduction. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, add a review to let us know what you think. You can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com. See you next week.